This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. You see, what happens is, is as children grow up, they've been told myths to make believe that they're really true, and then they grow up and suddenly they understand, well, that was just a myth. It's not really true. What about the truth? of the story and the reality of Christ. The children, as they grow up, come to that point of saying, well, that was just one of those childhood myths, and we put that away. Now we have to get down to real life. We all know the story of Santa Claus. He's a universal icon, very popular, even though, according to a catchy song, we better watch out, because he can see us when we're asleep or awake, and he only gives presents to good boys and girls, for goodness sake. (laughs) We've embraced this myth as a culture, essentially trading it for the truth of Christ, who really does see all things but doesn't withhold his gift from anyone. It's available to everyone who will simply accept it, the best gift of all, eternal life. Let's join Pastor David in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, for part one of our message entitled, Five Building Blocks of Advent. When we think about Christmas, we think about uh, particularly some of the songs of Christmas, One of the songs that always comes to mind, at least to me and possibly to you too, is Joy to the World. Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the World, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That was written by Isaac Watts back in the early 1700s, but you know what? It was never, ever intended to be a Christmas song. The song was actually written in anticipation of the second coming of Christ when he's going to reign and rule during that time. And somewhere during the time, it got changed over, and we sing it right now. We expect to hear joy to the world during Christmas time, don't we? Or am I the only one? Okay. Well, there's a lot of things about Christmas that we look at, and we have to be careful of. And hopefully I'm not going to burst anybody's bubble here this morning. But, you know, as we even speak to our children and our grandchildren about Santa Claus and those kinds of things, and you hear the stories. Let's see, he knows when I'm sleeping, he knows when I'm awake. Does that mean that Santa is omniscient? He knows all things? He's able to drop presents by all over the world in one night. Does that make Santa omnipresent? You see, what happens is, is as children grow up, they've been told myths to make believe that they're really true, and then they grow up and suddenly they understand, well, that was just a myth, it's not really true. What about the truth of the story and the reality of Christ? The children, as they grow up, come to that point of saying, well, that was just one of those childhood myths, and we put that away. Now we have to get down to real life. So parents, yes, and grandparents, our responsibilities are, is if you want to do myths for your children, hey, I'm not going to be legalistic about anything on that. But I am concerned about the fact that you differentiate between myths and reality and help them to understand the difference between two. Amen? Amen. 
And at that, I hope and pray you have a Merry Christmas with your children, grandchildren, and the family around. John wrote in his gospel, and that's where we're going to be this morning, the gospel according to John, a passage that we've alluded to and even spoken of several times during this Christmas season. In John chapter 1, we're going to begin not at the verse 1, but I want to drop down to verse 14 this morning. The passage is John writes to us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Verse 16, And of his fullness... We have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Of these five verses, verses 14 through 18, I see five building blocks within here, building blocks that bring us toward that advent, that coming of Christ. And I want to look at those this morning as we look at this section of scripture. And just like anytime you're building something, you need to start at the foundation. We're going to start at the very foundation. And that first foundation, that first building block is this. God is invisible. God is invisible. What does it mean to be invisible? Some people feel like they're invisible even when they're in a crowd of room. Some people want to be invisible when they're in a crowded room. But either the case, Merriam-Webster defines invisible in a pretty great way. One way it says, invisible is incapable by nature of being seen. The second definition is inaccessible to view. And I'd say that both of those fit with the invisible attribute of our God. In our natural state, our natural man cannot see God. We can't comprehend God even in our natural state. In our natural state, due to our sinful nature, God is inaccessible to us. We can't go into God's presence in our sinful nature. Listen to what the scripture says. Not only John here as he speaks in verse 18 where he says, No one has seen God at any time. But all throughout Scripture, we get the same kind of idea, the same kind of thought. Paul, when he's writing to young Timothy in 1 Timothy, he speaks to Timothy all kind of directions and admonitions as far as being a young pastor and what he ought to be doing. And then every once in a while, Paul, as is Paul's habit, he kind of breaks out in this doxology or this word of praise. And he does very much the same. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Now to the king eternal immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then a little bit later in the same book, still in 1 Timothy, this time down in chapter 6, he breaks out again, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. God is a spirit, and as such, he's invisible. You can't touch him. 
You can't contain him, and thus you can't control him. Remember Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he said to that woman, he says, don't forget, God is a spirit, and they that worship him have to worship him in the spirit, in spirit and in truth. Along with all the other attributes of God, the fact, though, that he's invisible makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for some people to put their trust and their hope in him because they can't touch him. They can't hold him. They can't see him with their eyes. As a matter of fact, years ago, back in 1961, Yuri Gagarin, the Soviet cosmonaut that was shot into outer space, went up into outer space, and the words that he declared at the height of his atheism was, I don't see any God out here. Someone shared with me last night after the service, he says somebody had shared with that years ago with him, and they had also said, but if he stepped out of that space capsule, took off his spacesuit, he would have seen God right away. It's neither here nor there. The fact is, is here is a man with, with the very first chance of all mankind to be up in outer space looking down upon the earth, which I believe was one of the prime instances of God's creative force, and to be able to see the spectacular view of all the heavens before him, God declaring himself, and he says, I don't see God here anywhere. And down through the centuries, that's been a problem for many. That's one of the reasons why almost right away in the early generations that we read in Genesis, man became an idol worshiper. He started worshiping something that he could create with his own two hands or worshiping nature or worshiping the S-U-N, sun, or the moon. Man wants to see something, or perhaps more truthful is the fact that man wants to control something. Therefore, he worships the creation instead of the creator, something that he can wrap his mind and his hands around. Because you see, I'll let you know right here, and don't take it as a blasphemous declaration, but God is out of control. He's out of your control. He's out of my control. He is out of control. Not that God is going and moving helter-skelter in all kinds of ways. No, God has a plan. God has a purpose. But he's not under the control of any. He is God. And so for me as an individual to say, you know what, I'm going to commit my whole life to him. I'm going to commit my family to him. I'm going to commit my finances to him. I'm going to commit my health to him. I'm going to commit my future, my plans to him with the understanding, but he's out of my control. That's a huge step of faith to say I'm putting everything that I have into the hands of someone and I don't know what he's going to do with it in the next heartbeat or in the next moment. That's what faith is all about, though, isn't it? Being willing to understand who God is, and yet at the same time having the faith to trust our life into his care. If God is invisible, how can I really trust him? Or better yet, how can I really get to know him? That brings us to the second of our building blocks. The second building block is this. Though God is invisible, God has revealed himself in times past. John tells us here in John 1, verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Now think about that for a moment, and we have to think back into the the time of Moses and how God dealt with Moses. God revealed himself to Moses in a way, or better yet, in a multiple of ways, 
that he never did to anyone else, either before that or since then. You remember the burning bush experience? Back in Exodus chapter 3, we read the story of Moses there. He's on the backside of the desert, minding his own business, tending the flock of sheep of his father-in-laws. And God intercepts, interrupts, impacts his life. Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Now, some might say, oh, but that's the angel of the Lord. That's just an angel. That's not really God appearing to him. Well, pause for a moment, read on, get it in the context of what he says. It says, so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord, when Jehovah saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. I wanted to do that in kind of a Charlton Heston voice, but I've... (laughs) For those of you younger than 30, just a voice, okay. And Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, then he, speaking of God, then God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And moreover, he said, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look upon God. God revealed himself to Moses. Not only that, a little bit later on, God revealed himself again. Remember, as they were wandering through the wilderness, and God gave them directions in building the tabernacle, and the tabernacle became a place where Moses and God would meet, and God would reveal himself to Moses there and speak to Moses there in the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 9, we read these words. It came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Okay, now, was it the cloud? No. The cloud was actually blocking the way of the rest of the people to enter. Moses is in the tabernacle communing with God. The pillar of cloud is there at the entrance of the tabernacle. He goes on to say, all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. And then verse 11, so the Lord, Jehovah, spoke to Moses face to face, As a man speaks to his friend, God revealed himself in a way that Moses could see him face to face as a friend would speak. Then there was the time that Moses was up on Mount Sinai. Okay, actually, the two times that Moses was on Mount Sinai. Remember, he went up the first time, got the tablets, came down with the tablets of the law, saw the people in pagan worship, threw down and broke the tablets. And God says, I know, I know. Come on back up. Let's do this again. 
He went up the second time. And we know that at the second time, as Moses was with the Lord, that relationship and that presence of the Lord in his life, it changed the physical appearance of Moses in a dramatic way. In Exodus chapter 34, we read in verse 29, Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, talked with God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. I believe because he was in the very presence of God, just the very power of the presence of God in his life. As a matter of fact, in Numbers, Numbers chapter 12, the Lord speaking, God speaking here about his relationship with Moses. God said, I spoke with him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of Jehovah. Moses sees the form of Jehovah. That's a powerful thing. Not many people have had that opportunity. Oh, a few, but here the invisible one reveals himself to Moses. The one who is the great I am, the all-sufficient one, showed himself to make his will known to the people that he was calling to himself. So the immortal, the invisible, the almighty one then uses this simple instrument of clay, Moses the man, to reveal himself. But to Moses... He revealed himself directly. And again, like I said, Moses wasn't the only one. There there were others. Many of the other prophets actually got to see the Lord. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, a very familiar passage to many of us. Isaiah writes that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. And I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, some say, well, maybe that was a vision, just a vision, a dream that Isaiah had. I don't believe that it was. I believe that the Lord actually brought Isaiah into his presence at that point in time. Because listen to what Isaiah declares. I said, woe is me, for I am toast. I I am undone. Sorry, my version. (laughs) Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. We also read where Abraham had audience. We read where Gideon was met. We read where the parents of Samson were met. All of these declared that they had seen the angel of the Lord, but there's some significant differences there. Rather, again, it was the pre-incarnate Christ that they saw. You can argue that point. We can speak of it. It's not a hill that I'm going to die on. They had an experience of seeing the Lord, seeing the Lord at work. Many of these laid out literally like Gideon said, if you really are the Lord, because the Lord is invisible, this is really of you, then I'm going to put out this fleece and let it be dry today and wet tomorrow. And it was, and it was. There was the parents of Samson that again says, if it really is, we're going to bring out an offering and sacrifice. And boom, the whole thing was brought up in smoke into the heavens. All of these visitations, though, they were for the purpose of God making his plan and his will known to mankind. And again, the invisible one breaking through our barrier of unbelief to reveal himself and his purposes to a lost mankind. But his greatest revelation came, though, 
when he stepped out of eternity, clothed himself in humanity, and made himself known as a man. Not through another vessel, but God himself coming, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man. That brings us to our third building block. The third building block is God put on humanity. We read here in John chapter 1, verse 14, how the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. But let's pretend for a moment that we're in a vacuum, okay? And all we know is verse 14. We don't know verse 1 and the others that follow. All we know is just verse 14. And let's look at it and listen to it again. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if that's all we knew, I think you would still have to agree with me that there is something very special about the Word. I mean, the Word, whatever it was, became flesh, or as you and I would say today, became flesh and blood. The Word did that, and the word there that's translated, W-O-R-D, word, comes from the Greek word, logos. Logos, translated, is a word that was significant both for the Jew of the time as well as for the Gentile or the Greek culture of the time. It was a term that was used both in religion and in secular writings of the day. Through the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which had an enormous amount of our Old Testament scriptures, including almost every bit of the book of Isaiah, there was also other articles, other writings that they found there. Just secular writings, business writings, letters, these kinds of things from the time frame. And in those, we know that for the Jews themselves, they borrowed from the Greek language and the Greek culture in their writings, and they used the word logos whenever they would speak about God. Again, that thought and the idea of who God was. In the Greek mind of that time, the Logos referred to, catch this, the rational principle that supervised and governed the universe. They wouldn't call him God, but it was just a rational principle that supervised and governed the universe. To the Stoics, a group of Greeks of the time. The Logos was the principle of divine reason which caused the natural creation to grow. It's The Logos is just the reasoning power of whatever divinity there was out there. Philo of Alexandria, he spoke of the Logos as the instrument, catch this, through which the world was created. These are non-believers. These are, these are guys that did not take the Old Testament verses or the prophets of the Old Testament. No, these are pagan non-believers, but yet in their culture, in their writing, they spoke of the Logos as being that by which the world was created. But Philo never thought of the Logos coming as a person. He didn't believe in the pre-existence in the world. As a matter of fact, Philo was pretty dogmatic in his denial of any incarnation of the Logos. But John writes about the Logos here and specifically speaks that it's the Logos that became flesh and dwelt among us. He's writing right to the culture of that time so that they might understand this that they didn't understand. 
that they might put a direction and a point of that that they had no idea what it was. John says, no, that logos, that essence, that power, that principle that you're speaking of became flesh and dwelt among us. And again, in the Greek, that word dwelt, it has the idea or the meaning of setting up a tent. Now, we think of setting up a tent as something temporary. I don't think any of us want to live in a tent all of our lives, okay? It might work out for a day or two camping, but even in my age, I look for, you know, we'll rough it at the Motel 6. But this dwelling among us, this idea of pitching his tent, isn't about the tent so much as it is relationship. He came to pitch his tent next to ours, to dwell among us. On behalf of Pastor David Landry and the entire production team here at The Open Word, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. This has been a special edition of The Open Word with Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. To learn more about The Open Word, visit our website at theopenword.com. You can download today's teaching or subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. Subscribing to the Open Word Podcast is the best way to stay up to date with all the latest messages from David. To subscribe, log on to theopenword.com, click on the podcast option on the homepage, or simply search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. You can also give us a call if you'd like. That number to call is 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Another option to get in touch with us is to send us an email. Our email address is info at theopenword.com. That's info at theopenword.com. When you contact us, please let us know the call letters of the station you heard The Open Word on and how today's broadcast has blessed you. Your feedback helps us know the Lord's direction for this ministry. Once again, you've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel in Casa Grande, Arizona. And again, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.